Come on in. We're going to get started in a second. We've got Vice President Walter Mondale. We've got Jake Sullivan. And we're gearing up to start. So come on in. Look forward to uh, our conversation. While folks are streaming in, I just want to uh, start um, by welcoming you. I'm Larry Jacobs. I'm a professor here at the University of Minnesota in the Humphrey School of Public Affairs, which is sponsoring today's program. I also direct the Center for the Study of Politics and Governance, which is convening today's conversation. We have a tradition here of relying on your questions. So please give us questions, give us good questions, challenging questions um, that really, you know, raise issues maybe that haven't been talked about or in your view haven't been talked about correctly. You'll see at the bottom of the screen, there's a Q&A button and that is your pathway to giving us good questions. So please do that. I uh, wanna jump right in, just absolutely thrilled uh, with um, the opportunity to have a conversation with Jake Sullivan. Um, some of you may know that Mr. Sullivan is from Minnesota. He graduated Southwest High School uh, here in Minneapolis. Um, and here's a little tidbits about Mr. Sullivan. He was debate champion. He was president of the student council and he was voted by his class to be most likely to succeed. And wow, were they right. Um, Ms. Sullivan was just announced as the uh, National Security Advisor to President-elect Biden, um, and he will be coming into office January 20th. He has been in the past Senior Policy Advisor to Hillary Clinton during her 2016 presidential campaign and worked very closely with Secretary Clinton at the State Department as a Deputy Chief of Staff. Um, so it's a great honor to have Mr. Sullivan with us. Um, and, and we're also delighted, of course, to have with us Walter Mondale, former vice president and um, a frequent collaborator on these kind of conversations and our class. Mr. Mondale, do you want to say a few words? I'd like to say that um, I hope that we realize how important Jake's new position is. This is one of the two or three top positions in our government in national security. And it, it's a sign that he's already seen as one of the senior seasoned foreign policy analysts and spokesmen uh, in, our, in our government. And uh, Jake, we're really proud of you. And we're, we're glad that you uh, chose to come back to Minnesota briefly, uh, at least to um, be with us before the, your ordeal begins. That's good judgment on your part to get briefed by us before you get into trouble. Thank you, sir. And thank you, Larry. 
Um, Mr. Bond, I want to just ask you to lean forward a little bit so we can hear you a little better. Okay. Um, Mr. Mondale, when you were vice president, you played a critical role in normalizing relations with China. Richard Nixon had recognized China, but your trip to China in 1979 began a period of engagement and you had very close uh, conversations and um, were able to work out a number of arrangements with the top Chinese leadership. That's right, and I I really enjoyed and I it, and I worked very hard at it. I did several trips to China. Um, I, I I became a good friend of Deng Xiaoping, Ping, and um, we um, and with the whole uh, Chinese team in uh, in Washington D.C. And, and I think we had it was kind of a high period in. U.S.-Chinese relations. I wish we could get back to that. Uh, right now, the Chinese government is, is uh, really uh, tough and brutal, uh, I'm afraid. And I'm, ho I'm hoping we can hear from, uh, from Jake about Chinese policy and what, what we're confronting, because I think it's quite different from what I was dealing with. Mr. Sullivan, do you want to uh, weigh in? I mean, here is this period of optimistic engagement where there was hope that China could be kind of uh, bent towards markets, could be bent towards some form of democracy, could be bent towards respecting the international order. Um, does, that, does that model fit our current situation? Well, it's obvious that there are steps that the Chinese government has taken in recent years and has signaled it will continue to take as we go forward across a range of fronts in terms of repression, in terms of uh, economic policies that distort markets and undercut American workers, in terms of uh, increasingly aggressive tendencies uh, in its approach to uh, military activities um, that suggest we have a real challenge on our hands. Um, on the other hand, it is also the case, as it was when Vice President Mondale was uh, working with the Chinese government um, uh, back in the period leading up to normalization, uh, that there are areas where the United States and China can work together because it's profoundly in our national interest to do so. Uh, can work together on issues related to climate change, can work together on issues related to nuclear proliferation. You know, I was one of the negotiators of the uh, Iran nuclear deal. And, and of course, China was part of the uh, group of world powers sitting on one side of the table with Iran on the other, trying to make sure we put Iran's nuclear program in a box. So it's about finding an effective approach that on the one hand pushes back hard on areas where China is engaging in practices and behaviors that are at odds with American interests and then working with China where um, it's consistent with our interests. And, and then while doing that, always standing up for our values, for the things that we believe in, speaking out as uh, President-elect Biden has done on um, the steps that China has taken vis-a-vis -vis Hong Kong or uh, the uh, atrocities that's been um, uh, carried out um, uh, 
guess I would say the, the, the repressive actions that have been carried out in Xinjiang and other steps along those lines. So, um, so it will, this will be about fundamentally, um, you know, the United States knowing what our interests are, being clear-eyed and hard-headed in pursuing them. And the last word I would say on this is any good China strategy fundamentally begins here at home with the United States investing in the sources of our own strength so that we can compete from a position of advantage. And that includes investments in innovation and education and our workforce, in our infrastructure, in our democracy, in our democratic model, uh, so that we have the strongest, firmest possible foundation upon which to carry out uh, an effective China strategy and, and to do so in concert with like-minded allies and partners. Mr. Sullivan, I want to read to you a, a, a quote from uh, Senator Marco Rubio, uh, who was um, who praised the selections that uh, President-elect Biden has made in the last week or so. And then he said, uh, these individuals will be polite and orderly caretakers of America's decline as we become increasingly dependent on China. Is that the path that you're discussing or is it quite different? Well, first, I, I do hope to try to be as polite as possible as a, as a Minnesotan. Um, you know, we tend <laughs> to think about politeness as, as a good thing. But, you know, of course, politeness is not a, a tool of national security or foreign policy or strategy. It's, it's, a, it's a way of conducting oneself in, uh, in conversations such as this one, where I will endeavor not to start yelling at you, Larry. Um, but, but on the fundamental question about American decline, I mean, let me answer this question by picking up right where I left off my answer to your last question. Because what is going to be required for American renewal for a stronger, fairer, more vibrant nation um, is just the kinds of investments I was talking about and the kinds of investments that President-elect Biden laid out over the course of the past two years. That's what building back better is all about. It's about having a stronger economy that works for working people. It's about expanding and enhancing our innovation edge with huge investments in research and development. It's about owning the future in key industries, uh, not just in technology, but in clean energy, in advanced materials and manufacturing. Um, and then it's about our democracy as well. It's about making sure that our democracy is not deteriorating, but rather is robust and strong and inclusive and diverse and has institutions that uh, are rooted in the deep constitutional principles that have helped make our country uh, the country it's been for the last 200 plus years. So the agenda that we're bringing forward um, under the leadership and vision and direction of, of President-elect Biden uh, is an agenda of building a stronger, uh, more sustainable, uh, more dynamic, more fair, more inclusive nation and in doing so, we are going to be able to compete and outcompete everyone, including China. Uh, so that's the vision we're bringing. That's the strategy we're bringing. Um, and the one other thing that I would say is yesterday, President-elect Biden made a very strong point of saying America's back on the world stage. And what he really meant by that is that we believe profoundly that by working with other countries, we actually enhance all of those different sources of strength, that pulling allies and like-minded democracies together, we will do better at advancing the interests of the American people. And so 
a strategy rooted in strong alliances, um, strong connections to fellow democracies is also gonna be central uh, to playing this out over time. So you are kind of laying out a, um, a vision of American foreign policy and national security that you've been talking about for, well, since the 2016 election. Um, and in that period, you referred to some of the foreign policy circles uh, as hermetically sealed and cut off from America and particularly the middle class and the concern about jobs. And the vision you're putting forward is in some ways a correction of that. It's also a return to the idea that domestic policy, domestic concerns ought to be the engine behind what we're doing on the global stage. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my view uh, has increasingly firmed up and I've become more and more passionate about it, that we need to break down the silos between foreign policy and domestic policy. And that we have to think about our work abroad. Uh, the alliances that we are modernizing, the institutions that we're helping to lead and shape, the agreements that we're helping to negotiate and sign, all of these things ultimately have to be rooted in the lives and livelihoods of working people in the middle class here in the United States, in Minnesota and all across the country. And too frequently, I think, over the course of the past decades, through different administrations, Republican and Democrat alike, that lines were drawn between those who worked on traditional foreign policy and national security issues and those who worked on domestic and economic policy issues. And I think those lines did not serve the American people as well as a fully integrated uh, agenda that puts every foreign policy and national security decision through a filter of, is this going to be good in, in making life better, easier, safer for working people, middle-class families uh, here in the United States of America? That is the kind of ethos that I want to bring to this job when it comes to uh, international economic issues, but also when it comes to where are we allocating our resources? Where are we, you know, where are we putting the president's energy and attention? How are we dealing with big uh, threats that really come home to roost, uh, whether it's climate or pandemic disease uh, or corruption for that matter that can eat uh, out the, the heart of a, an open and, uh, and transparent economy. So um, that's the president-elect's direction to us. That's the charge I'm gonna take forward as the uh, coordinator of his national security process. And I'm gonna lift up the work of the, the senior team across the government on national security who wanna carry that spirit forward into the actual practice and conduct of our foreign policy. So could you give us an example perhaps from China um, where that sort of orientation is really gonna matter out here in the heartland in very tangible, concrete terms. Get the big vision, but how does it translate into practical, tangible payoffs for Americans, many of whom voted for Donald Trump because his message of America first was channeling this sense of weariness that we're abroad and it doesn't really pay off. So what are some tangible payoffs that, that, that you're anticipating? I'll give you two examples. So the first example is, you know, five, 10 years ago, someone sitting in, in Minneapolis or Anoka or Duluth could easily have said, hey, why do we have 44 people on the payroll in China working on public health issues? What gives with that? 
why do we have people embedded in the Chinese version of the CDC? And why do we have folks looking at disease and, and food safety and all of these other issues? Couldn't that money better be spent here at home? I don't think that many people would ask that question today because those folks got removed in the last few years. And the result was we didn't have eyes and ears on the ground uh, to see this COVID-19 pandemic coming. We weren't able to get folks on the ground to be able to understand the disease earlier, uh, to have a full grasp on its spread. And that came at a cost to the United States, a cost that we are still paying. And so that's a very tangible example of where making investments overseas, deploying diplomatic and public health and other personnel in other countries can help us deal with threats before they reach our shores, can help us understand them, detect them, prevent them. Um, and, and, you know, our view is we've got to get back to that. We've got to get back to that kind of engagement in the world. And, and that includes things like rejoining the World Health Organization rather than walking away from it. A second example relates to climate. The United States is 15% of global emissions. So, you know, we could end carbon emissions tomorrow and 85% would still be untouched and we would still be facing a significant challenge from the point of view of climate change. China is the world's largest emitter. So we are only going to succeed in dealing with the rising sea levels on our coasts, the uh, superstorms and hurricanes that are going up and down the Gulf and, and along the East Coast, the wildfires in the West, the floods in the Midwest. If we are getting the nations of the world to up their game, their level of ambition in terms of, of reducing overall carbon pollution, that requires diplomatic horsepower and muscle. It requires the allocation of resources. It requires us to be participating in international organizations. And yes, in the Paris Climate Accord, which is also something that we will rejoin. So these organizations and these institutions and these treaties can seem kind of abstract, but they end up having real life, real world consequences for people. And those are two examples that don't even come to the kind of trade and economic issues that ended up, end up hitting Americans in their pocketbooks, in their jobs, in their communities, um, where also uh, making sure that we have a middle-class oriented trade and international economic policy is gonna be vital to protecting the, the economic livelihoods of American uh, families and workers. Vice President Mondale, one of your <clears throat> major priorities when you were in the White House uh, were human rights. And you've talked about human rights as uh, a fundamental value, and it certainly reflects American history and, and traditions. Is, are human rights a national security tool does this help America abroad as we try to advance our interests and those of our allies? Yes, it does, uh, because it means we're trying to be stronger across the board. And we're trying to uh, leverage American strength um, as, as broadly as we can. And in so doing, strengthening America's role in the world. So I, my answer is a clear yes. And so Jake Sullivan does America's tradition of standing up for human rights. Does that advance our efforts to coexist with China? Or is it, as it sometimes appears during the Trump administration, viewed as a, a point of 
of kind of friction and maybe even um, conflict? It's who we are. I mean, I, I think it's built into America's DNA. So for me, the question is not, is it a wise strategy to speak out on behalf of human dignity and the rights of all people to live free of fear of the kind of oppression that we see in places like, like Xinjiang and Hong Kong and across China in many respects. Um, so we should speak out. Uh, we, should, we should speak out with a clear voice about what we believe in, what we stand up for, and we should do that uh, with consistency and predictability across the world. Um, and we should rally uh, like-minded nations to do the same. Um, and, and I see nothing inconsistent with that. Uh, and also pursuing the other elements of American strategy and other national interests that we have. But for me, uh, the role of human rights and democratic values, um, when I think about the span of uh, President-elect Biden's career, his vision for his presidency, this is a central proposition. He has talked about pulling together a summit of democracies in his first year um, to talk about a set of issues, the ways in which uh, democratic values are under strain uh, and duress in, in many parts of the world and what collectively we can do to build greater resilience. Um, and so this is going to be a key feature of our uh, um, of our approach. And um, that doesn't mean that, um, you know, other countries are always going to like it. And that's not going to deter us from continuing to speak out. Jake Sullivan, you've written quite a bit, even since the 2016 uh, election about China. You've talked about the kind of um, unsettling shift towards uh, perhaps outright confrontation about the possibility of dangerous spirals. Um, I noticed in an interview with Bloomberg News, Henry Kissinger goes a step further. He says, America and China are now drifting increasingly towards confrontation. Is China the number one national security challenge for the United States? Well, I would say right now today, the number one national security challenge for the United States is to get the COVID-19 pandemic under control. Uh, it is taking the lives of more than a thousand Americans a day and the prospects are getting worse. And for me, that is a core national security issue that every instrumentality of our government should be working at. Now, China is a piece of that. It emanated from there. They did not act responsibly uh, in uh, the way they dealt in the early phase with it. Um, and, and that's something we will have to contend with as we go forward. But um, we cannot lose sight of the fact that in the immediate term, um, that's the number one uh, threat currently destabilizing our economy um, and uh, uh, disrupting our way of life and taking more than 250,000 American lives. China uh, is a significant challenge for the United States in many respects. Um, but I do not believe that confrontation or outright conflict is inevitable. I think we can manage this relationship in a way in which we are clear-eyed about advancing our interests and pushing back firmly uh, where uh, China is acting in ways that are inimical to those interests, while also finding the kind of scope to work with them um, uh, 
where there there can be gains derived from that. Um, and that's sort of the, the framework that I think we have to bring to bear in that relationship. And, and I would say one other thing about it, which I have said before and feel very strongly about. Ultimately, US-China strategy should not be about defining the relationship. People, you know, and sort of would you go to couples counseling and, and the counselor will ask you to define the relationship. And a lot of times over the course of the US-China relationship, the last 25 years, there've been labels given, there's been kind of like, what you know, let's take stock, where are we in this relationship? I think we need to get away from thinking in those terms and just think more fundamentally, more straightforwardly, I, I would say in a more kind of Midwestern or Minnesota fashion. Okay, what are America's interests and objectives in the world for our people? How do we go about achieving them? And how do we deal with China on both the competitive side and the cooperative side to achieve them. And let's proceed accordingly. And I believe that if we do that responsibly with strength and with resolve, but also with subtlety and effectiveness, that we can advance and enhance America's standing in the world um, without drifting into uh, a new Cold War or something like that. The Cold War analogy has been used to describe, at least by some people, where we're heading with China. Does that make sense to you? Is this like a kind of a, a shoe that fits where we are heading right now? Uh, so I hate, I hate to ever cite myself. It's like, um, you know, I don't know, maybe I've been teaching too long at universities and I just can't help it. But um, Kurt Campbell, a, a former colleague of mine who is Assistant Secretary of State for, for East Asian and Pacific Affairs at the State Department, uh, he and I wrote a piece together in Foreign Affairs last year, um, where we basically make the case that the Cold War analogy simply doesn't apply here for a variety of reasons. Uh, the nature of the competition is fundamentally different. Uh, it, it involves elements of economic competition and technological competition that weren't as present. The um, interaction between the two great powers is different. Um, you know, we have uh, interconnections economically in terms of people-to-people -people ties in terms of, um, you know, uh, a history of, of diplomatic engagement going back to Vice President Mondale's leadership and, and before. Um, so we need a different formula here. The going back and digging out the old Cold War formula is not a recipe for a successful outcome where America's interests are protected and advanced. Um, you know, and so I think the relationship to, 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 again, to me, should be less about labels and, and categorization and more about the kind of simple nuts and bolts of what do we need to deliver for the American people in terms of their security, their prosperity, their way of life, their values, and how do we go about doing that um, in a way that keeps us off a path, off of that downward spiral to outright confrontation. Um, it's going to require being tough. It's going to require uh, pushing back hard. It's going to require uh, taking exception to the, the egregious Chinese practices, government practices that we have seen far too frequently. Um, so there will be no shortage of moments um, where this will not be easy. But I don't buy into the idea that um, uh, placing the Cold War frame around this is a, is a recipe for success for the United States when it comes to the US-China uh, to US China strategy. China is militarized or is in the process of militarizing the South China Sea, which is of course a transit area for 
trillions of dollars in trade. Uh, it violates international law. Is that one of those flashpoints that you're um, you know, anticipating might develop as, as the Biden administration um, takes perhaps a stronger or more consistent uh, stance in that area? The Obama administration had to deal with uh, an assertive, grow increasingly assertive and aggressive Chinese posture in the South China Sea. The Trump administration had to deal with it. The incoming Biden administration will have to deal with it. And President-elect Biden has been very clear that you know he is going to uh, insist upon the freedom of navigation and unimpeded lawful commerce through the South China Sea. Uh, um, that uh, every country, including China, uh, adhere to the basic international rules and norms um, for uh, territorial demands for, um, as I mentioned before, freedom of navigation, and we'll operate accordingly. And, um, you know, we're going to have a clear and consistent position on that. Um, uh, it will not come as a great surprise to Beijing what it will be. It will be tough. It will be firm. Um, and uh, we feel that that is the best way to proceed uh, when it comes to uh, managing our interests and safeguarding the larger issue of international law and freedom of navigation in the South China Sea. Mr. Mondale, when- Can yes. I ask a question, please? Of course, please. When, when we, we look at uh, US-China policy, it seems like we're uh, confronting a growing list of the toughest of challenges. Is there anything about our relationship that is uh, improving, provides any hope for optimism? Uh, a lot, can, you, can you tell me anything along the line of good news? That's a great question. I mean, I think it's hard right now to find an area of increasing cooperation. Uh, there are a lot of cross pressures on this relationship right now, but that doesn't mean there are not opportunities. And, you know, one of those opportunities after we rejoin the Paris Climate Accord on day one, as President-elect Biden has, has pledged, um, is to find a way forward with China in terms of elevating both of our ambition when it comes to reducing carbon pollution. I think that is an area where there could be progress. Um, you know, we will obviously consult with China as a member of the P5 plus one. This is the permanent five members of the UN Security Council uh, plus Germany and the European Union. That's the group of world powers that negotiates with Iran. As we work on the Iran nuclear issue, uh, picking up the pieces from the last four years, we will obviously uh, be consulting with China on that. So there are places where um, we can work towards common objectives um, but in terms of areas that are going well or that are really trending in a positive direction, uh, it's hard for me to, to come up with one off the top of my head. Mr. Mondale, uh, when you were working on uh, the China um, issue, you were also having to give hard thought about the nature of the U.S. relationship with Taiwan. China has a continued um, a threatening posture towards Taiwan. Do you think the U.S. needs to be tougher in terms of extending uh, defense capabilities to Taiwan to deter uh, Chinese aggression? 
I remember this a long time ago, but I remember being in uh, Beijing when this issue came up. And we, we were very direct about it. This is a, uh, Taiwan's an independent country. It's entitled to its own policies, its own direction. And um, we should allow, allow them to do so. Uh, that, that China I was talking to didn't like it, obviously, but they, it was clear they were going to accept it for a while. Now it seems like it's much harsher. Uh, I, don't, I don't know whether uh, Jake's going to be able to put some Minnesota juice in this thing or not, but uh, I'd like to hear from him about what he thinks. Mr. Vice President, what I think about China, the, the relationship between China and Taiwan, and particularly about um, what the U.S. might consider doing to signal to China that Taiwanese independence is a top priority for us, whether that is providing arms to Taiwan, whether it's about positioning our military assets in such a way that China um, recognizes the intent of the United States. So uh, President Biden and the, and the national security team will uh, be clear and lay out our approach when it comes to the issue of Taiwan um, as we go forward. And I don't wanna get ahead of that. Uh, part of my job is to be the coordinator of the national security process. But I will say this, um, uh, President-elect Biden believes strongly in um, the baseline, the foundation of what has sustained U.S.-Taiwan policy on a bipartisan basis through multiple administrations. The one China policy of the adherence to the Taiwan Relations Act, the uh, sale of defense articles to Taiwan to improve their capacity uh, uh, for self-defense in the face of aggression. And, and we are seeing um, you know, increasing capabilities and aggressive tendencies on the other side. And so uh, President-elect Biden will be in that tradition, that bipartisan tradition uh, of Taiwan policy as we go forward. But in terms of more specifics of how that will play out, part of it is, you know, will depend on our ability to move through this orderly transition and then get, a, get an opportunity to be in, uh, in the government and, and lay out our vision and our strategy on that question as we go forward. Thank you. Mr. Sullivan, you were a critical uh, driver of America's negotiations with Iran that produced an agreement that has obviously fallen apart uh, during the, the, the current administration. What are your thoughts about the future of the Iran US or the Iran uh, multi-party uh, agreement? Can that be rebuilt? Um, is, do you have a lot of uncertainty about that capability or how, how are you thinking about it? Well, what the, um, what the president-elect said repeatedly on the campaign trail is the policy that we are working through in the transition to put in effect after January 20th, which is that if Iran is prepared to return to compliance with the Iran nuclear deal, what's called the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, uh, then the United States is prepared to return to compliance with its obligations under the Iran nuclear deal. Um, and then um, would 
work intensively on follow-on movements uh, to address a range of different issues uh, related to Iran's nuclear program, including timelines um, and, and including other questions uh, that were not within the remit of the original JCPOA. So in terms of Iran's intense concern about the relaxation of economic sanctions, that's really hit the Iranian people very hard. Is that something that would be part of the negotiations? So that's really up to Iran. Uh, you know, the, the, what President-elect Biden has said is that he's prepared to, you know, return to compliance, which, um, and, and sanctions are a piece of that. Um, if Iran returns to compliance for its obligations that it's been violating and um, is prepared uh, to advance good faith negotiations on these follow-on agreements. So it'd be kind of a trade-off. Uh, Iran comes back into compliance. We relax the sanctions. One of the criticisms of the agreement, and by the way, if you don't know the story of um, Mr. Sullivan's involvement in this Iranian uh, agreement, it's a heck of a story. It's been written about. It's There's a little bit of a kind of James Bond element to some of it. Um, but uh, getting back to the agreement, one of the criticisms is that Iran, outside the nuclear uh, framework, was engaged in hostile acts, whether it was sponsoring terrorism um, or other acts. Do you see bringing those other kind of non-nuclear, but uh, um, you know, um, uh, aggressive uh, tactics by Iran, bringing that into the negotiations? Well, I'd say a couple things about that. First, those regional issues uh, impact a range of regional partners uh, uh, and, and countries uh, that are not at the table in the nuclear negotiations, um, which is really this set of world powers plus Iran. So um, the United States will stand behind and support diplomacy and diplomatic efforts and, and play our own role in them to deal with a number of these regional questions. Uh, and to push back on uh, Iran's destabilizing and aggressive behavior across the region, its sponsorship of terrorism, its support for proxy militias and the like, um, and do all of that in the context of a coherent Iran strategy that has a nuclear dimension, a regional dimension, a human rights dimension, and, and you know, covers the waterfront. Um, but on the precise question of dealing with some of these regional issues, uh, it is going to be incumbent upon us to make sure that uh, all of the countries who are impacted by those regional questions have a voice and a capacity to participate um, in, uh, in the policy and diplomacy that, that would go into trying to resolve them. Mr. Sullivan, we've got a lot of questions here. I wanna just take off a few. One is about um, the priority you're gonna put on America's intelligence capacity. Do you, do you view it as having been degraded over the last four years and needing resustance and revival? Well, you know, we've actually just had ascertainment, uh, which is this word that now many Americans know, meaning we, the transition can begin in earnest and we will have an opportunity to engage, uh, we hope, and in, in an orderly fashion with the intelligence community to really get a full understanding of where the capabilities stand. One thing I will say is that um, there was an erosion of um, the overall uh, sort of sense of independence uh, of the intelligence community. 
um, that you know we'll be very strongly looking to restore. But in terms of, of um, what's going to be required to make sure that we've got all the tools and capabilities we need, all of the personnel we need, and the right priorities for how to allocate those against the range of threats we face, that's something we're going to have to work through in this transition process. Jake Solve, as you know, Walter Mondale and I've taught a class for a number of years that looks at um, constitutional framework for accountability and presidential power. So we've got to ask, there was a lot of concern during the Trump uh, presidency about unilateral executive action and the threat of it, such as the near launching of an attack on Iran that may well have precipitated a war, even though Congress had not even been consulted, let alone um, having uh, given a declaration of war. There was concern about President Trump's threat of using nuclear weapons. Do you see the Biden uh, years as an opportunity to return to the idea of accountability and, and, and restraining the exercise of unilateral executive power? Well, President-elect Biden served several terms in the United States Senate. He has chaired uh, both the Senate Judiciary and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He is a very strong believer in Article One. Um, he's also served eight years as vice president and is a very strong believer in Article Two. And he's a believer that you've got to have both the Congress and the executive branch doing their constitutional duties to carry forward and shape the policy of the United States. And that's at 30,000 feet. So to your question, his view is that he wants to see Congress step up and play its role on questions of foreign policy and national security, on issues related to the authorization to use military force, on the way it allocates funding, on its oversight, uh, on its participation in supporting the public investment we need to rebuild that strong foundation we talked about in earlier answers. So he will be looking to have a strong partnership with the Congress um, so that um, this you know, our foreign policy and national security is not just purely operated out of Article Two, but has the, the correct and proper participation of Article One as well. Mr. Mondale, does that sound like the direction you'd like to see? Yep, I do. And, um, you know, um, the president-elect is in a, a special position there. I don't think we've ever had a new president quite as in contact with all of the uh, legislative leaders like we do today. And he knows them all. Uh, I remember this was years ago when, when he showed up in the Senate, brand new. That was almost 40 some years ago. And he, he, he knows everybody on, on the appropriate committees. He knows them personally, talked to them, been friends of theirs, is friends, uh, is a friend, friends of theirs today. Uh, and uh, I think we can expect maybe a new, a new and more encouraging relationship out of the new administration that we've ever had before. I mean, uh, 
I spent a lot of time talking to Carter about this. And I think he was pretty good about it. But he, he had no relationship as um, this president-elect has with, um, with the outgoing and the incoming uh, administration at his time. This was, and he had to, he had to fight the Jake Sullivan, let me uh, uh, kind of expand that. Uh, one of the concerns of people like Jack Goldsmith, who was um, in a high-level position in the Justice Department under uh, George W. Bush, one of uh, Goldsmith's concerns is that the authorization for the use of military force, which was originally passed shortly after 9-11, is still being used by presidents to justify unilateral action. If Congress passed, do you think it would be appropriate for uh, President Biden to sign a uh, termination of the authorization for use of military force? Well, I think uh, the position that President-elect Biden took on the campaign trails is he would like to work with the Congress on a new authorization that is um, uh, a narrower, more targeted, more up-to-date version that lays out um, where authorities are necessary uh, to deal with terrorist threats, um, in what places, against which groups, for what duration, with what means, that all that should be worked out in consultation between uh, the president and the Congress. And he would like to work with them on, on such a new authorization, which would supersede uh, those that are in effect today. We've talked about so many issues. You've talked about climate change. Uh, we've talked about uh, China, obviously, the Middle East we've gotten into in terms of Iran, but we haven't talked about Israel and, and um, its situation. Um, then you've got Europe, which is in some ways fragmenting with uh, Poland and Hungary becoming more authoritarian with England perhaps uh, opting for Brexit. What are the priorities going in? What are the things that you kind of put on your chalkboard and say, these are the things we need to wake up in the morning thinking about and that we have to focus on and where we can't let the energy and focus of the administration uh, get squandered? Well, let me start by saying, and this comes back to the point about the intersection of, of foreign policy and national security on the one hand and, and domestic and economic policy on the other hand. I think a traditional answer to that question would be to immediately start on what's the list in the, in the kind of national security bucket. But I think the important place for the national security advisor to President-elect Biden to start is actually with what, what is Biden's view of what we're up against. And he sees these multiple overlapping crises that span foreign and domestic, COVID-19 pandemic, an economic crisis that has a uh, deep domestic dimension, but also an international dimension, the climate crisis, a crisis of racial justice um, that is taking place at home, but also raises questions about identity and populism and authoritarianism and threats to democracy writ large. Um, and um, when, when he looks at that range of different crises, and, and then of course there's, there's technological disruption, which I also spoke about in my remarks yesterday, so coming from there, there's dealing with the immediate, as I talked about before, uh, getting the pandemic under control and get us, getting us 
effectively beyond COVID-19. Um, but then there are the, the set of moves we've got to make um, uh, that will put us in a position to deal with all of those crises collectively in making strong investments at home, very high priority, not just a domestic economic priority, a national security priority, investments in the sources of our economic and democratic strength, uh, reinforcing and modernizing our relationships with our allies. A high priority of his immediately out of the gate is gonna be to go build those alliances back up to be strong and capable of dealing with the modern threats that we face. Um, and, and, and having done so, that is pulling that together is the way that we can affect most effectively deal um, with the challenge posed by China. But it's also the way that we can most effectively deal with the ongoing set of larger challenges facing the United States, whether it's climate or terrorism and the spread of weapons of mass destruction um, or future pandemics. Uh, so that would be how we would think about carrying um, uh, this administration forward. And of course, you know, one other issue that we will have to immediately deal with that also spans the foreign and domestic divide is, um, is the question of refugees and migration, which will be uh, an important uh, priority for this administration uh, in the months ahead. He has said he will send a comprehensive immigration reform bill to the Congress right out of the gate, uh, and he intends to do that. You know, listening to you talk, I don't think I've ever heard a national security advisor with such a broad brief. The national security advisors that, that I'm familiar with tend to be kind of really focused on traditional definitions of national security. We haven't even talked about terrorism or you know, nuclear threats or, um, do you see yourself as really carving out kind of a new model for what a national security advisor could be? Well, as I said in my remarks yesterday, um, uh, President-elect Biden has charged us with vigilance and effective response to enduring threats from terrorism to weapons of mass destruction to, to great power competitors. And I consider it fundamental to my job to get that right. And by the way, my most significant uh, act uh, uh, or set of actions from my prior service in government was working on a nuclear weapons issue, the Iran nuclear weapons deal. And, and you know, we could do a separate seminar on centrifuge technology and verification regimes and, and all the like that are much more in that core bucket. So it's not that I don't believe in attending to those issues and, and that I don't care passionately about them um, or that I don't have the muscle memory to deal with them. But President-elect Biden has also tasked us with reimagining our national security to see it more broadly, frankly, in my view, to see it the way the American people see it, the people in Minnesota see it, you know, middle-class folks in this country see it, and not just how it's been cast, you know, on Think Tank Row in DC. And that is this broader set of issues. It is questions related to health and economics and environment and, uh, and identity, uh, and, and, and in that regard, dignity and human rights and democracy and so forth. So I think we've gotta be able to do all of that without ending up so far out in a realm of abstraction that we aren't bearing down on the serious challenges that we face and having a systematic strategy to be able to deal with them. That's what I think my job is all about. Uh, that's the ethos that I'm gonna to bring to it, not because you know, I'm coming in with my agenda, but because I'm coming in with Joe Biden's agenda. And this is what Joe Biden 
you know, who has more experience in foreign policy and national security than any incoming president, probably, you know, you know, maybe there's one exception ever, um, and more experience in caring about the people from his hometown of Scranton or the people, you know, of the, uh, you know, the, the Iron Range or, or what have you. And so really, I see my job as carrying out his agenda and his agenda is this much broader conception of what our national security is all about. Mr. Mondo, I'm thinking about um, the national security advisor to uh, President Carter, who you work with closely, uh, Brzezinski. Um, the way Jake Sullivan is defining that role sounds a whole lot different, doesn't it? Yes, um, Brzezinski was his own um, uh, describer, and um, he um, he wanted it to be his way. Uh, I think that uh, sometimes the president had trouble controlling his expansive definition of what his job was all about. But by and large, he's a very gifted guy, uh, a lot of energy. Uh, I think you'd have to say one of the strongest um, uh, persons to hold that position in, in, uh, in its history. Uh, and and that, that's the history. I, 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 what I'm hearing from Jake is much more rounded, in my opinion. It, um, it, it holds, uh, in my opinion, a chance for much more uh, cooperation. Uh, the big was always in a fight somewhere. And uh, I don't think that maybe to begin with, we're going to have to start fighting some of these issues, but I don't think uh, just describing how many fights you're in is, 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 is the best way to proceed. Jake Sullivan. Yeah, just one, one thing I would say about that, that I, I think is really important for people to understand is Brzezinski, you know, the, he was waking up in the morning, going to sleep at night, thinking about the Soviet Union. And the nature of the challenge from the Soviet Union was more narrow cast than, for example, the nature of the challenge we face today from China. Um, he wasn't having to worry about questions related to TikTok. Okay. Um, uh, just as an example, or, um, or all of the downstream economic effects of Chinese state-owned enterprises, uh, subsidies, intellectual property theft, or what it was going to take to work uh, collaboratively with a country like China to be able to reduce overall global emissions because that's flooding America's farms and burning America's cities. So, you know, I'm not, my, my view is, not that I'm choosing kind of one place on the spectrum of dealing with great power competition versus dealing with this range of other things. It's all these other things are now at the heart of great power competition and great power dynamics. And if we don't recognize that collectively as a, as a society, as a democracy, as a Congress, as a White House, um, as a national security apparatus, then we're going to get behind the eight ball really fast. Mr. Solon, we got a couple questions here from Minnesotans that are kind of uh, asking you to pull back the curtains on what your job would look like. 
One says, can you explain a day in the life of a national security advisor? What does that look like? What, what would you be doing? How would it matter? Well, the short answer is I'm not sure yet because every president um, sets up their rhythm differently and every national security advisor sets up their structure differently. And as we work through the transition, we'll get more clarity and specificity around that. So, so I can't say precisely what it will look like, but roughly speaking, um, it will begin with uh, digesting an enormous amount of uh, intelligence analysis and diplomatic cables that come in overnight uh, from our intelligence community and from embassies and posts around the world. Um, ordering that in a way to be able to, to help present to the president uh, in a morning meeting what's going on in the world. Now, the, the intelligence professionals lead what's called the president's daily briefing. The National Security Advisor then offers some commentary on the policy elements of that, updates and, and the like. Uh, it will involve um, chairing a series of meetings of the, what's called the principals, who are the, the cabinet secretaries in national security, the secretary of state and defense and director of national intelligence and so forth. Um, and uh, those meetings could be on everything from China to climate, to uh, Iran, to uh, NATO, to you name it. Um, it will involve meeting with foreign counterparts, uh, both in the United States and traveling around the world. Um, uh, it will involve uh, dealing with crises that come up, things you woke up in the morning and weren't thinking about can consume your day because something has happened somewhere in the world. Um, and uh, that's a day, that's, that's kind of a day in the life of a, of, of a national security advisor. We have a, a question I would describe as the Minnesota nice question. Um, many of the comments of the security team that the president-elect introduced, as well as you, have commented about the importance of kindness and decency. And Walter Mondale is associated with those values as well um, to this day. Why does it matter that there is a conduct that has decency and kindness as part of it, just in terms of kind of the everyday operation of a national security advisor and an administration? Uh, well, the US government is a big complex place you know, with a lot of people working in a lot of different agencies and departments and, and, and instrumentalities spread across this, this city. And if you don't have a sense of mutual respect with your colleagues and with everybody at every level of government, if you don't believe in them, if you don't support them, if you don't trust them and treat them with dignity and kindness, you're not going to get the best out of them. You're going to create uh, friction and transaction costs and crisis and drama that is self-manufactured. There's enough of that out in the world for us to contend with without us generating it ourselves. And I fundamentally believe that you run the most effective process if you run it with a sense of empathy and humanity and kindness and decency, because I actually believe that translates into effectiveness and efficiency on the other side. Um, you know, that's, that's Joe Biden through and through. It's how he's always operated. Uh, it's what he's, you know, charged the rest of us with operating. I think probably the single biggest fireable offense for Joe Biden is someone just being a lousy jerk 
uh, he wouldn't stand for that. And, and he's going to expect that uh, throughout his government. Mr. Mondale, uh, Jake Sullivan's time with us has come to a close. Do you want to thank him for joining us? Yes, and I'd like to say this is one of the uh, remarkable moments uh, that I've had at the University of Minnesota in this program to have uh, Jake Sullivan, um, a prominent Minnesotan, uh, here about to assume one of the highest positions in our government and to hear him speak with such ability, clarity, strength um, is, is an inspiration. And I'm really grateful to him for, for this. Mr. Vice President, that means a huge amount to me as a, as a kid who grew up um, just really looking up to you and as an adult who continues to look up to you and, and uh, gets the opportunity to learn from you. And Larry is just uh, as usual. Yeah, you put me through my paces and I really appreciate the opportunity to do this. Thank you very much, Jake Sullivan. You are a Minnesota prize. So keep up the good work and we'll be in touch. Thank you. And for those of you who are still with us, a few announcements. Uh, I want to just let you know, we're going to take a break from politics in December, but here's what we've got coming and it's extraordinary. We have got two of the best, well-known, most recognized fiction writers coming in. Charles Baxter, December 3rd at noon, he'll be reading from his new novel and talking about it. And then uh, kids book uh, famed Kate DiCamillo will be joining us. Kate has won two Newbery, Newbery Prizes. Um, every book she comes out is on the New York Times bestseller list. That is an extraordinary event as well. And that is December 18th at noon. If you like kids' books, if you've got kids, if you've got grandkids, this is a must. So I want to um, also just mention these programs take resources. We'd be grateful for those of you who care to support this kind of programming and let you know that today's conversation will be available um, on YouTube. It'll also be a podcast and we'll have that posted in the next 24 hours. Vice President Mondale, thank you so much for joining us. Um, thank you so much for um, your uh, kind and generous participation. I think we're heading into our 16th year in our course together. Um, I think you'll be joining us next week and the students are very excited um, to have you back with us. So, and thank you for today. This was a really a, a terrific conversation with, with Jake Sullivan. You're muted. Your sound is muted. Okay, we'll, we'll talk soon. Thank you very much. Have a good Thanksgiving. Yes, have a good Thanksgiving to all of you. Stay well, and we'll see you soon.